Welcome back to the third and final episode in the Acne Points of Discussion mini-series, Is Eye Pledge Working? A Conversation on Isotretinoin. In our second episode, Dr. Frieden shared the challenges healthcare providers and patients face navigating this program. If you haven't had a chance to listen to episodes one and two, be sure to do so before continuing on here. Before we begin, it's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with qualified healthcare providers. I'd like to introduce your host, Dr. Leah Layler. Dr. Layler is a practicing pediatric dermatologist at the Medical College of Wisconsin and vice chair of PEDRA's ACNE and HS focus study group. I'd like to turn it over to you now, Dr. Layler. Thank you and welcome to episode three. In episodes one and two, we discussed eye pledge and isotretinoin use with two experts, Dr. Jill Lindstrom and Dr. Alona Frieden. Here in episode three, we'll have a discussion. Dr. Lindstrom and Dr. Frieden, let's discuss. So, Dr. Lindstrom, in episode two, Dr. Frieden outlined some of the problems as she sees it with the iPledge system. Do you agree with the problems that she has outlined and are there others? iPledge is certainly not a perfect program. It's a, the issue of mitigating <laughs> the risk of a serious teratogen, which um, is widely prescribed to people of reproductive age is, is a challenging one. And I certainly agree uh, that the program is burdensome and that there are enhancements uh, that could be made. I think she also made an excellent point that there has been an evolution in um, the parameters of care um, with the um, evolution of the acne guidelines, the um, importance of antibiotic stewardship, the increased use of isotretinoin, um, changes in contraceptive um, options, uh, or these changes may provide a basis for re-examining the program to see if there are ways that the program can accommodate the changing landscape uh, of clinical practice. To, to kind of recap some of the issues that um, Dr. Frieden mentioned, she has said that there are those logistical challenges with the, with the iPledge system that could result in us pushing the doses rather than individualizing treatment. There is an economic burden on patients and their families. Um, there's an administrative burden on us in the clinics and our staff. Um, 
And uh, basically, as you mentioned, changing isotretinoin prescribing patterns with the changing landscape of acne treatment in general with the um, with the labeling of oral contraceptives uh, with an indication for acne and with the change in um, guidelines on antibiotic stewardship and the use of um, and treatment for acne in particular. And then of course, she also talked about the long acting contraceptives and um, their you know, dramatic improvement on um, efficacy in, in pregnancy prevention, um, including people who can't get pregnant in iPledge as a system, um, that that may not make a whole lot of sense anymore, or maybe didn't ever. And, um, and now the changing concept around gender identity and how we can serve our, all of our patients in a more equitable manner. Um, with all of that in mind, I, I'd like to hear from you, Dr. Frieden, you, you kind of already mentioned in episode two, I think the answer to, or your answer to this question, but do you think I pledge could or should be eliminated? I, I don't think I pledge will be eliminated. And, and so I think that's the more relevant uh, answer, to be honest, uh, whether my own, I don't think my own personal opinion is as important as understanding that the FDA has an obligation for drugs that have risk potential. This is a drug where there are about a million prescriptions written a year for this medication, and a good percentage of those are in people who can become pregnant. And many, uh, perhaps the majority, are in an age group where they can become pregnant, that, that, that this is not going to go away, that the FDA is not going to suddenly say, what, well, throw out their hands and say, well, okay, you know, do, do whatever you feel like doing. If you, you know, do the counseling in your office, uh, they've already been down that road, and th and that I I just don't think that that's going to happen. So so to me, it makes much more sense to try and create a program that includes elements that were not included in the original program, in part because it didn't really the idea of sort of patient centered. I I don't really think that I, we thought about that. But, as much as we do now when this program was instituted. And we, we have to think about, you know, acting on behalf of the interests of patients. Um, and and that, that I think is one piece of it. We have to think about disparities and if they're being exaggerated, how do you mitigate that? And these are all things that I think are now part of our world and that people do think about. And then to me, the, the other piece is, is, is that if you want this to be a registry program, and, and Dr. Lindstrom talked about how essentially the iPledge iteration became a drug registry program. You cannot get this unless you register. So it is essentially a registry. If that's the case, that the people who are not really um, at risk for the most serious side effect of teratogenicity should have in a way a very, it should be like registering your car. You renew it once a year or something as opposed to registering, you know, something that's that's much more dangerous that, that somehow needs to be monitored more often. And, and, and maybe something along those lines would be a good 
way to 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 look at this. But having said that, that's I, I think that there's broad consensus in dermatology that if it has to exist, that it needs to be very much reformed. I, I, I don't think, uh, you know, I think if we're able to get those changes through, that will be amazing for us as dermatologists. Um, the problem that we're facing is that it's, it's the problem of how do we get to that point? And we've really been trying this. The work group that I joined was in, in, at the end of 2018. And here we are at the end of 2021, three years later. Now, obviously things have happened in terms of we wanted to go and meet with people at the FDA. You know, we couldn't meet in person, things like that. But I would actually be very interested in hearing from Dr. Lindstrom, how do, how do we go about trying to convene an advisory committee? You made a great point. It's been 10 years. That's a very long time for a drug that's used and that we have a lot of new information of, about how it's used and why it's used. And this seems like something that would be ripe for a new advisory uh, committee meeting. I agree. I think it certainly would be. In, in addition, the, um, the changes that are being implemented, I think... Um, would have benefited from public discussion. Yeah. That would have also provided the opportunity to update on the public on information that has been gleaned over the um, 10 years since the last advisory committee and the 15 years that this program has been um, in, in operation or in existence. And there is indeed a treasure trove of information, it would be very interesting to see changes over time. Additionally, while um, personnel at FDA review this data, I think analysis by other minds uh, could be very fruitful. How does one, to your question though, how does one convene an advisory committee? Advisory committees are, again, a statutory option that FDA has where they can seek input when they have questions, when they need to decide, when they need to regulate um, an issue that has um, a large public impact, something that may present a novel, either scientific or regulatory question. They can convene an advisory committee to get input and to air an issue those who are not in FDA can't convene an advisory committee for FDA. It's FDA that convenes the advisory committee. So um, it's not something that an, that an outside person can do on behalf of the agency. The question is how to, a question might be why FDA has not had an advisory committee in so long, why they've moved from a position of ongoing discussion to, to really uh, a long period of silence mm. and introducing changes without any, without any transparency and why they have not um, thought it necessary to present the data from this program for discussion. So I think that these, you know, those, those are important questions. It's difficult, it can be difficult to get the agency's attention. Mm. And this is in part uh, because um, 
by design. There are firewalls, so to speak, mm -hmm. to protect um, the individuals that work there from influence so that they can make unbiased determinations. However, that um, can lead to some insularity on their part. FDA has, I think, has some awareness of this and has an off office of stakeholder engagement, which outside parties can um, engage with. But I don't want to, having been on the inside, I don't want to suggest that it is easy um, yeah. to have an audience with personnel there. Additionally, perhaps like many people, I think most personnel at FDA feel that they are, that the flow of, of information and responsibilities um, is rapid. And so that adds to the challenge yeah. of getting there. Yeah, I, I think that you make a really good point about the stakeholders too, because I, I think that un, un, uh, unfortunately, you know, there's not like an acne vulgaris community support group kind of organization. I mean, so the acne uh, rosacea society is a professional organization. It's not a patient advocacy organization. There really isn't um, one to point to. What interestingly though, um, the, and this may be related and, and maybe something to think about in terms of trying to find a path forward. So the Foundation for Theosis and Related Skin Types Research, um, they, they have a very big stake in this drug mm -hmm. because it's the drug that all of these babies and people are on, uh, you know, many times for years and years. And they're ensnared in the system, even though the vast majority of them um, cannot um, become pregnant. And, and the um, consensus guidelines, which were partly through PIDRA that came out for ichthyosis, which were published, make a, and, and this is through the work of Andrea Zangline, who's been another part of our work group and is very involved in, in uh, PIDRA. She, she, um, you know, she helped to write those guidelines. And one of the major problems that ichthyosis patients have in terms of barriers to care is eye pledge actually. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you might be able to, through, through trying to form political alliances, I, I think if they look at just the AAD or the Acumization Society coming, they can just say, well, oh, you know, these are doctors, they have a conflict of interest, you know, they're, as opposed to the patients who do have a louder voice, but there's not a good patient advocacy group. So you can, of course, get lots of patients to come and testify. And, and maybe another group to consider that with in terms of strategizing our, our transgender individuals. And that's actually has, has come out, um, uh, you know, you where you have a lot of, of, of ad potential advocacy voices there. So I think you could probably get together um, those kinds of individuals, plus people who represent some of the underrepresented groups that have, have suffered from the health disparities like uh, Native Americans. Uh, because of, yes. of, of their situation and, and try and make, make the point that this should be looked at. Um, maybe that would be a, a good way forward. Yeah, Dr. Lindstrom, you, you mentioned that it is difficult to get the attention of the folks at FDA. What does tend to get their attention? Well, I think <laughs> you've raised um, very good ideas with the 
rare disease groups. And I think that that's a, an important shortcoming of the REMS. Um, certainly there's burden on acne patients who may take this for um, a number of months, but the burden on someone who has um, a chronic disease and will take that uh, drug for a much longer period, the burden is uh, understandably much greater. That might be um, one community who, who would have um, a message that would resonate there. I think the cultural understanding across our nation, the growing cultural awareness of disparities, and it exists in FDA as well. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's, that's quite, quite broad in the nation and um, perhaps raising awareness of disparities that are exacerbated uh, because of the I Pledge program uh, may also be an important message to bring. Something that would also be helpful is coming with solutions. I think FDA actually would be interested in changes around, around more effective forms of contraception, the long-acting uh, contraceptives, their use reduces the risk that's trying to be managed. And that's FDA's goal is to mitigate risk. So solutions that will help them better achieve their goal will catch their attention. And there's um, a potential you know, uh, intersection where that goal is achieved and perhaps um, burden could also be lessened. So I think looking for intersections where risk can be mitigated and burden can be reduced may be fruitful and may resonate with personnel within the agency. You mentioned bringing solutions and Dr. Frieden in a fairly recent paper, um, you mentioned that your work group, the DA I Pledge work group put out basically a position statement. Um, outlining all the problems as the work group saw it um, with iPledge and, and proposing some very insightful solutions. Um, would you be able to discuss some or all of those here? And, and Dr. Lindstrom, you can see, we, we can kind of see if, if some of these things would meet that intersection, as you mentioned. The, the, there's a table in our uh, JAMA Dermatology publication, which was from 2000, October 2019. And it really talks about that if you, for example, let's talk about long acting contraceptives that it proposed that currently, if you don't have a long acting contraceptive that you would have monthly um, documentation and attestation. But if you if you were documented to be on a lark, a lark as, as it's called, that it be every three months. And if you uh, are not able to become pregnant, that it would be every six months. So we didn't say throw the whole system out. We said this would be a, a, a way to sort of pull back to a system that still meets the goals of, of the original intent of, of of this. Um, so that that's basically what was said in terms of required number of forms of contraception, you know, that for patients um, who 
are able to become pregnant, but they're not on long acting, that, that you would stick with two, that, that it, in LARC, you would basically have one, um, which is a change to the requirement um, that currently abstinence is also one, but, but these would be people, people who wouldn't be abstinent necessarily, most pro probably. And then basically the baseline pregnancy screening would be for those who are on, not on a long acting, but, have uh, but able to become pregnant, um, you know, 30 days prior to initiation and initiation, which really isn't a change. But for LARC, it would be really at initiation and they would not have the sort of washout uh, period, which to us made sense. And then if they're not able to become pregnant, obviously they don't, they don't do that. And, and, and those were really the, uh, in terms of pre pregnancy screening, it would be similar to the attestation. So with the non-LARC patients, it would be monthly. With the LARC patients, it would be every three months or as per, per patient preference. Um, so those are like the major um, changes that were proposed. I think that those, those, are, those are good proposals. Um, I think that I would hope that if we can get the hearing from the people who really um, need to buy into this, which would be the sponsors and the FDA, if we can get to the point where we can get a hearing and we can state the reasons for this, and the downsides, I, I always like to say to my patients, you know, who say to me, oh, I don't want to try a medication because there, there are side effects. And I like to say to them, yeah, but there are side effects from not taking the medication too, you know? So this is not, this is not a situation where there's no side effects from leaving the situation the way it is. There, there are side effects and, and we're all experiencing them. Um, so that's why we need to move forward. And, and like I said, I, I'm an optimist. I mean, this has been, so far a three-year journey, but I'm hoping to be around for a few more years to, to see it to, 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 to a happier ending. But I, you know, we, we will see. I think Dr. Lindstrom has given us some good ideas in terms of at least approaching the Office of the Stakeholders. We have some other things that I think the AADA is, is gonna try to do, but, but um, I feel a little bit discouraged this week because what we found out this week is though though we the happy or last week that that the drug will now be classified into able to become pregnant and not able to become pregnant, but the entire registration system was revamped and without, to our knowledge, any derm, any um, it doesn't have to be dermatologist any prescriber, which by the way is almost exclusively dermatologist any prescriber input. Um, about how, how that was going to work out in practical purposes in our offices. And we're talking about for busier practices, you know, five to 10 patients a week sometimes who are, who are being registered into the system um, with, ex, with, the, with asking them to, to, to be doing this in their doctor's office at, and, um, you know, with the doctor present. Um, these are things that, that are really a step backwards. So um, this is not to denigrate the advance in terms of the, the, the cl new classification to pregnant and not pregnant. I think that, that we have to claim that as a victory. I think it is a victory, but, but we have a long road to go before 
before this is over. Dr. Lindstrom, what do you what do you think about those solutions that uh, Dr. Frieden just outlined? Do those seem like things that could fit in that intersection of mitigating risk, but also reducing burden? It sounds pretty good to me. Some do. Um, I think identifying LARC as a as a form of contraception that doesn't require a second form makes good scientific, good medical sense. And I, I think that there would be openness uh, to a change like that. And I don't think it would be difficult, analogous to abstinence, abstinence being the quote unquote two forms. The changes proposed um, where someone on a long acting contraceptive or a patient who cannot become pregnant needing to engage less frequently uh, with eye pledge quarterly or, or you know, at some less frequent interval presents more challenge. There's, there's appeal to that. It would reduce burden, um, but it introduces complexity and risk. So it's, there's complexity that would be introduced to the, to the eye pledge program. Right now, all categories of patients interact every month. And, oh, well, why, who, who cares? Well, if you look at the, the broader system of iPledge, pharmacists don't need to, to think about Leslie Smith, whether Leslie Smith can get pregnant or can't get pregnant. There's the, the process that the pharmacist goes through is the same for every patient. And there's, there's benefit to that and that it makes for a tighter system, a system um, uh, less likely to have errors. Additionally, if you look over the history of the discussions leading up to the implementation of iPledge, the advisory committee transcripts and the advisory committee votes and conclusions uh, very strongly recommended registration of all patients. And at the time they used the language males and females, we can now um, sort of update their sense of those that can become pregnant and those that can't become pregnant. And I don't want to um, summarize what they were thinking, but my understanding of what they were thinking again is to provide a system um, that is as robust as possible. So I have concern that it might be more difficult to achieve um, the recommendations around um, differential frequency of engagement uh, for patient groups. Now, just because I'm not optimistic that that might not occur, doesn't mean that it shouldn't be pursued. It just means that I recognize that there are challenges to that, um, that it wouldn't have uh, the same appeal, so to speak, because it would it, it presents challenges and it may even increase risk from the from the agency or the sponsor's perspective. At some point earlier, we just discussed, I think it might have been in the introduction or perhaps uh, Dr. Frieden in, in your prior uh, section, the impact of telemedicine. And one thing that um, comes to mind for me, in addition to the changes, in the practice landscape are the advances in technology over the years. 10 years is a, is a long time. And um, 
technology has changed over that time. And the recent pandemic, the ongoing pandemic has forced us and, and has forced us all to change and forced the FDA and the iPledge program to accept changes such as home pregnancy tests and telemedicine visits. And the world did not end. It would be very interesting to see the data and maybe a point worth almost, um, I don't wanna say demanding, but strongly requesting that we need to see what was the impact of those changes. The public should be made aware. That should be, that should be presented for, for public discussion. That in my mind is another strong reason to consider the Drug Safety and Risk Management Advisory Committee convening a meeting to discuss um, whether some of the changes, the impact that they had and whether they could be continued and some efficiencies maybe, or you know, some reduction of burden may be able to be achieved based on what we've learned. What a fascinating point. I have, I have been wondering, how did we get such rapid approval to do telemedicine and to get home pregnancy tests for our patients on isotretinoin at the beginning of the pandemic when our offices were closed and um, you know we didn't really know what was going to happen and how soon we would be open again and not wanting to expose patients unnecessarily um, when masks were at a shortage and we didn't even know masks were important or needed or how the virus was spread. I mean, all those things yeah. we were, we wanted people to continue on their medication and, and comply with the guidelines and stay safe, both from a teratogenicity perspective, but also from a virus perspective. So I did wonder how did that happen so quickly? And, um, and I am very curious to see the, to see the data about that. And, and that just brings us back to the research that not only the um, clarity of the transparency with all of this, these data, but, but now what can we do with that data to help us understand how to keep our patients safe, how to get them a, an effective drug and how to advocate and, um, and advocate for them and, and keep the drug um, in the right hands. I left the agency in December of 2019. And so, I, <laughs> and so I'm present. It, it was an interesting time to return uh, to clinical medicine. Um, yeah. At the at the cusp of the or or you know at the cusp of the pandemic. At any rate, so I was not on the inside to know how that happened, but I I, I can surmise that there um, was engagement between the agency and uh, the sponsor group. And I think that both the agency and the sponsors um, deserve our uh, commendation for their nimbleness and the way that they did address that and the way that they served patients in making those changes and taking risk. And, and, and I just, I would give a shout out 
to my colleagues within the agency for being nimble um, and rising to the challenge. It's interesting, um, you know, I, I think you're, you're quite right. I, the, the sad fact that we have no idea really what happened, it, again, points to the sort of lack of transparency to, to the stakeholders, um, but I think they've made the right call. That said, it, the I pledge requirements are, as I said, kind of agnostic. It, um, it's, it's not explicitly permitted to do telemedicine in the iPledge program, but everyone is doing it now, sort of. I, but it wasn't like written in like, okay, we didn't get an advisory saying, okay, well now that's okay, which we would really like to have. Um, and I think there are other, you know, along the lines of what you said, you know, even if, and I would hope that they would you know, the whole issue of the pharmacy have, I hadn't thought really, to be honest about that piece of it, of, of what comes to a pharmacist, but it would not be impossible to have a, some sort of a very, you know, a quick, you know, you got an in-basket message that said, I attest that this is a non-reproductive and you sign that month's prescription without having to see the patient kind mm -hmm. of thing or interaction even with the patient would be better than the system we have now. Um, so right. if, it, if it comes to that, there probably are many ways we can figure out how that could be done. Um, uh, so, so I think there's a lot of there's a lot to explore in terms of um, brainstorming and, and thinking about. But you've given us a lot of I think ideas for that, and um, maybe offline we can get your input about <laughs> how to move forward. Or maybe it be a future collaboration. Yes, exactly. Maybe you would maybe you would help us to figure out classic how. PIDRA collaboration <laughs> already <laughs> forming. Um, I did, you know, I did want to mention that I, I I'm no computer scientist or or coder or whatever, but but it seems to me that it would be fairly easy to code something where if you click a button that says on long acting reproductive, their confirmation is good for three months and that, or whatever we're proposing. I know that's what the Dr. Frieden was yeah. proposing was a three month confirmation. Of course, we can debate the medical utility in that and, and all of that, like what's the data behind that. But, but it seems to me like it would be an easy coding thing to just say that confirmation is good for however much time. It's still the same, the pharmacist same each month. They check it just like they are now and the confirmation is still good. So I feel like that may be less of a problem on the pharmacist end though. I, I maintain my right to be wrong about that <laughs> and my naivety about how pharmacies work. It, it may be. Um, as long as as they were still dispensing, you know, uh, thirty days supply, then then it yeah. would uh, be transparent, or it would be you know yeah. invisible, so to speak, to the to the pharmacist. So, um, yeah, an incremental change I think is possible. Well, I think this has been a truly fascinating discussion. I have learned so much from both of you, um, and I so appreciate your both of your willingness to be open and vulnerable in this discussion and, you know, open to each other's ideas in particular. I mean, we're all obviously on the same team, just coming from slightly different perspectives and experiences. 
Um, I wanted to ask one last question of each of you. And, you know, we keep coming back to this idea of lack of transparency, that the data is out there, but we can't see it. We don't have access to it. What sort of things could we do with that data if we had it? What research projects are burning on your minds? What do you want to know from that data? What can we learn from it? Dr. Lindstrom, maybe you could start? Some, um, you know, I, I, I just, uh, a descriptive, you know, um, using it to understand the universe experience that has been the previous 15 years uh, exploring the data, it's hard for me to even say what questions I'd like to have answered. Certainly um, changes um, more recently since with home COVID. tests with COVID, right. Before and after seeing the impact there would be an obvious uh, and easy question. I think there are, uh, there's, there's just so many uh, questions where, where is the risk? Is it in the in what age group? In in what demographic? What's what's impacting that? Um, yeah, I think there's many questions that could be asked. I know I'd like to see that data. I got a lot of research questions, Dr. Frieden. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Oh, well, I, I agree with with Dr. Lindstrom very much that there's so much out there we don't even know. You know, one question will lead to, to another, but. I don't think we have a really good sense of the landscape at this point of even in a granular way, who's getting the drug uh, sort of, and for how long they're getting it. Um, so practice patterns in itself, I think would be very, very important. Um, who, how many patients end up needing repeat courses um, is something that we don't really, I mean, because, because it's kind of hidden away from us in a sense in this, in, in the system, but, and yet very available because we have register. I mean, registries are rich with data. So to be able to study a registry, it's the very reason you form registries, right? And usually getting a registry going costs millions of dollars. Well, this, this has already been paid for by, uh, by all of us, basically by the farm manufacturers and their profit, you know, take their profit and take a little bit for the registry, et cetera. Um, so I, I think it's, there's an incredible amount of information there. I think to the extent that we might be able to look at health disparities by zip code and things like that would be very, very important in terms of not just who gets it by zip code, which I think that you, we probably might be able to get data from pharmacy databases on that, but who drops out sooner because they like literally can't continue the program. So you have shorter courses for people in certain areas versus other areas, or are there demographic groups that are more at risk for not being able to complete a course because they just can't, you know, it's too much. Um, those would be very, I think, very, very interesting um, health, health services research. So um, I, I hope that we're, we're able to come back in a year or two and, with, with, and talk about what the next steps are. Indeed. I hope so too. Well, this has been incredibly interesting. Thank you both so much for your time. I look forward to talking with you both more about this in the future. Thank Likewise. you. A great, a great privilege. Thank you. Thanks a lot. 
Thank you for listening to our first Points of Discussion mini-series about the iPledge program. I hope this third and final episode on this topic has you thinking about the kind of research data transparency might lead to and sparks new ideas and new projects moving forward. Thank you to Dr. Leah Layler for moderating all three episodes and leading an engaging and thought-provoking discussion. Thank you to Dr. Lindstrom and Dr. Frieden for providing expert knowledge and insight into the iPledge program and its benefits and challenges. I would also like to thank our Points of Discussion program sponsors, AbbVie Inc., Eli Lilly and Company, and Sanofi Genzyme and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals for their support of this independent medical education program. If you have thoughts on the iPledge program, or if this series has sparked new research ideas, we'd love to know. Send us an email at info at To listen to more PEDRA programming, be sure to subscribe to PEDRA Pearl's podcast in iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Download the PEDRA app available for Apple and Android users and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn for more pediatric dermatology research content. December's Points of Discussion miniseries will tackle the use of sunblock in infants with PEDRA's neonatal focus study group. You won't want to miss it. PEDRA is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty.